Again, thank you for being here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open up to Revelation 14. That's where we're going to be at this morning, looking at verses 6 through 13. And as Kyle said, this is a dynamic passage. And just so you're aware, we're talking about hell this morning. Uh, so I, I know Kyle means well by the comment, but I don't know uh, if he's just kind of getting back at me, cracking a joke with saying I'm the best person for this passage. Um, if you remember, when he came back from sabbatical, uh, we had teed up for him to teach on divorce. First Sunday back in six weeks, he teaches on divorce. So I think this is his teeing up for me, just to even the playing field. Uh, but I'm thankful for that. But as you turn there, as you're getting ready to get, uh, hear the word of the Lord, I want you to ponder a question. Aren't you glad the Olympics are over? Uh, uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Now, what I mean by this is I watch the, the, the most random things on the TV, random things. Uh, endlessly scrolling at night. I watched horses jumping over poles uh, in various heights. I have no idea what that's called, but it was on, so I watched it. Uh, I watched a grown man tumble and jump and flip and kick and all these different things across the mat like he's at a charismatic convention. Um, again, random things. Uh, but uh, there's a, there, you can't look at gymnastics and not be amazed. If we're honest with one another, the, the amount of focus and talent that goes into play with that is astonishing. But there is another kind of gymnastics that is it's just not so inspiring. It's called exegetical gymnastics. Exegetical or exegesis is how we interpret scripture here at LifePoint. We take the passage and we want to preach through the entirety of the passage and get the point across about what the author is trying to communicate. Uh, now, a lot of the times, people struggle with this because they say it's hard to get to the meaning. I can disagree with that statement. It's not hard to get to the meaning of the text, but it can be difficult to accept what it's trying to communicate. Certain areas can be harder than others. This leads pastors to uh, gymnastics around or jump around or, or avoid different areas of Scripture because they don't want to accept what the text has to say. A low-hanging fruit here is the Bible is very clear on what it expects or what it says about homosexuality, gender, the exclusivity of Christ, and the list can go on. It is not hard to find what the Lord has to say about these different topics in these different areas, but it can be difficult to accept them. So again, what they end up doing is jumping around and they create a character of God. You know what a character is? A character is like if you go to the fair and you ask this artist to draw you and they exaggerate on a specific feature. Like for me, for instance, if I was going to get a character drawn of me, they will exaggerate my already large head. They will make it even bigger. My barber's here. He knows. It's a, it's a big head. Um, <laughs> uh, but they, they exaggerate on that aspect and minimize and draw attention away from others. This ends up happening a lot of the times with the doctrine of hell. People exaggerate on the fact that God is so loving, he wouldn't send anyone to hell. They exaggerate the, the love of God, and that is a true statement. God is love. But in his love, he is also pure and righteous and just. So what this means is he will judge our sin accordingly. A payment will be due for our sin, and there is no way around this. So people create characters of God. And more often than not, hell doesn't fit. So what people end up doing is creating a false God, removing his justice and his righteousness and focusing in on his love. And what that's called is idolatry. 
you are not worshiping the one true God in his entirety. You're molding him and fitting him into your pocket, what is more comfortable for you. This is idolatry. And admittedly, talking about hell brings about these different mixed emotions because we don't want hell for us, but we may want hell for other people. You know the neighbor that always leaves their grass too high or has a boat in the front yard that's kind of an eyesore, things like that, or people like Hitler or Stalin or Hussein or the people who exploit traffic young kids, exploit and traffic young kids. We say hell can't burn hot enough for them. But we have to realize, church, hell is going to be full of people that are culturally good. Hell is a place reserved for people who reject Jesus. It doesn't matter the, the, the depravity, the greatness of your sin, or lack thereof. If you stand on your own compass and your own efforts, or you just completely live a life regardless of what God has to say, the destination for both people is hell because they have not placed their hope in Jesus Christ. So what this means is that there are people that I know and love that will spend eternity with Hitler and people of this nature. So this reality demands our attention. We must open the scriptures, study what it has to say, and let it mold us and shape us to a better understanding of this doctrine. See, Revelation 14, 1 through 5, teaches teaches that those who have the mark of the lamb are rewarded with eternity and joy in heaven. And Revelation 14, 6 through 13, where we're going to be today, teaches that those who have the mark of the beast are sentenced to eternal torment and suffering and the burning of fire and sulfur in hell. So with our text, John sees three angels that I believe can break, we can break this down into three points. The first point, because hell is real, we declare the gospel to every person. Because hell is real, we declare the gospel to every person. The second point, because hell is real, denying the gospel leads to eternal punishment. It leads to eternal punishment. And our last point, because hell is real, devotion to the gospel gives enduring power. So with that said, grab your Bibles, Revelation chapter 14. Starting in verse 6 says this. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. And we're going to pause there for a moment. At the opening of this text, John sees an angel flying overhead. He's proclaiming the good news of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, language, and people group. This is the mercy of God ensuring that the message of the gospel will impact every single people group across our world. Now, this is a beautiful reminder to the believer of how good Jesus is, but the hope here is that as people from every tribe, language, and nation hear the words of the gospel, their eyes will begin to be open to the reality that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is only Jesus. It is only Jesus. You can think about it this way. Uh, those of you that have been to the beach, you always see these planes that fly over the beach, and they have these massively long banners that have some kind of message on them, like 
half-priced crab legs at Buddy's Seafood, and you're like, oh, I'm definitely going to Buddy's tonight. I want some crab legs. It draws your attention. It intrigues your interest. And more often than not, it can move people to action. This is the motivation of the angel. But he's not giving you half-priced crab legs. He's giving you the Savior of the world. He's trying to draw your attention to the exclusivity of Christ. And our hope is that people would come to know him through this effort. And church, this isn't a new thing. This isn't a new thing. John is echoing Jesus' teaching on Mount Olive out of Matthew 24, verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is why at LifePoint, our mantra is live sent. You hear this a lot. You see it everywhere. This is an important thing that we live sent. We get this out of Romans 10, verse 14. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have never believed or have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, there is a, a, a terrible saying that's like, uh, to share the gospel, use words when necessary, or something along those lines. It's speaking to you that I can go out, I can do these specific actions, I can hold the door open for uh, everybody that walks by, say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and all these different things, and people will see Jesus. Uh, now, I agree the fact that our actions should be different, but they will not be saved if they don't hear the gospel. So we must be a people who have the gospel on our lips. And to whatever realm or environment that you are in these days, the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified has to be spoken into it. Because again, if we don't go and we don't speak, how then will they hear and how then will they be saved? And if we understand the doctrine of hell, the people who do not repent of their sin and hear the gospel go to hell as a payment for their sin. Now you could say, well, you said preaching. I'm not a pastor, so that excludes me from doing that. That's false. Preaching isn't solely on Sunday mornings from behind the pulpit. Every single time you go out and you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and you share the gospel with people, you are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ crucified. So it's not reserved just for pastors. If you are a believer in this room, you have been called and you have been commanded by God to go and share the gospel, period. There's no way around this. And although the reality of hell is motivating, I don't want you to fix your heart on hell. I want you to fix your heart on Christ and let that be what motivates you to go because this is about his glory. The people that we love that are giving their worship to the, all of these different little G gods, they're taking the worship from the one true God and giving it to uh, a creation, if you will. That worship is reserved for the creator. Therefore, they are living in sin. They must repent of that sin. That's what this is about, that they would repent and give glory and worship to God in this life. Because if they don't, because if they don't, they will be compelled to give glory to God later. Now, our view of hell reveals a couple of things, okay? 
Uh, I want to point out two of them really quick. Our view of hell uh, tells us what we believe about God and what we believe about our sins. So here's what I mean. It reveals our view of God's worth. If we don't believe hell is real, we don't have a high view of the glory and the majesty and the righteousness and value of Jesus. And if we don't believe hell is real, we massively underestimate the depth of our, of our sin, the depth and horror of our sin. So if we don't believe hell is real, we have massively missed the mark on these two principles. Sin, now, it isn't fundamentally just doing bad things. I've done something wrong. Now, that is sin if we disobey the commands of God. But what happens when we sin is we begin to say that God in and of himself is a light thing. I'm not worried about the consequences. It's like the kid that you say, hey, don't do that. Don't, go, don't, don't walk off this carpet. And the kid walks over. What you going to do about it? We, all, we have all seen those kids. They step off and look at you and ask the question, what are you going to do about it? And when God gives us a design in the way that we should live our lives and we willingly walk outside of that design and look back at him and we simply say, what are you going to do about it? You're a God of love. You're not going to judge our sin. I'm not worried about the consequences. And hear me, church, we should be worried about the consequences because God is holy and God is righteous and he will judge our sin accordingly. There is nothing that happens in this life that is sin that will not be judged. And because of our sin, it has an eternal punishment in a real place called hell. My second point, denying the gospel leads to eternal punishment. Let's pick back up in verse 8. It says, Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's a light text today, right? <laughs> John sees a second angel declaring, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great who made people drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. You see, Babylon was a real empire that uh, conquered and enslaved Israel. So through the times, it became a, became a symbol of, of evil empires and all things that opposed Jesus. Our world is full of those things, full of people and systems that oppose the one true king. It's full of people being seduced by pleasure, seduced by power and things that Babylon has to offer. It's like a porn addiction, if you will. You really don't want to do it, but you can't help but to go back over and over and over and over again. And this is why John brings about the fact of sexual immorality. It's a reference to idolatry here. 
It's when you repeatedly look at things and or yourself as more valuable than Jesus. And you say, I'm going to get mine. And I'm not worried about what Jesus or the scriptures or God has to say about it. I'm more valuable now than Jesus ever will be. This is the message of Babylon. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are more people in our society that are serving sexual immorality and themselves other than the one true king. And we know the world hates, persecutes, belittles, maligns the true believer. They even kill the believer. If we don't believe that fact, I saw a tweet earlier this week of someone who sent a message out that the followers of Jesus that are in Iraq in these underground churches received letters from the Taliban saying, we know who you are, we know where you're at. If you don't stop, we will kill you. The world hates believers. The world hates believers. So it could be very easy to see those things and say, well, the dragon is winning, so there is no hope. Church, I want you to hear me, and I want to remind you, we know how this ends. So although it seems that those who don't follow Jesus are are prospering in this moment, it won't last long. As though it seems those who are do shady business make more money, or those who don't tithe have more things, or or those who have uh, rejected Jesus have more sex or have more fun, all of these different things, it can seem pretty unfair. But the truth of the matter is if they do not repent of their sin. They will burn in hell for all of eternity. And I'm not trying to get a point the cross of hellfire and brimstone. I don't want to scare you into following Jesus because there's plenty of things to scare you out of it. Like being killed for your faith. I want you to see what the scripture has to say. And it says that vengeance belongs to our God. So we see the third angel says they will drink the wine of God's wrath, full strength. If you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline that, circle that. They will drink the, the wine of God's wrath, full strength, into the cup of his anger and be tormented in fire and sulfur. Just as grapes are crushed to produce wine, sinners will be crushed by the wrath of God. I want you to notice as well, it's full strength. You see, just like whiskey distillers, they mixed wine with water to bring down the proof so it wouldn't be as hot. It would be more palatable and comfortable for the individual partaking from it. This is not the case with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not going to be watered down. It is not going to be palatable for you. It is not going to be weak. It's full strength, 200 proof. Full strength. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur, which is brimstone. This is the type of asphalt that's found in uh, volcanic deposits that produces extreme heat and an obnoxious smell. I want you to imagine for a moment swimming in molten lava for all of eternity without being destroyed. Imagine that. We often see when someone passes away the phrase, 
they're in a better place. And although this reality can be true for the believer, they are in a better place. And scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They are in a better place, the follower of Jesus, but for the individual that dies outside of Christ, they are not in a better place, church. Their heaven was the life that they lived here because hell is a place that is far worse than anything that our, imagine, or our imaginations could create. So they are not in a better place. And John speaks to this in saying that smoke goes up forever and ever because there is no rest. It doesn't stop. Psalm 127 tells us, does he, being Jesus, gives to his beloved rest? For those that don't follow Jesus, there is no rest and there is no escape. The intoxication of Babylon's wine is temporary. You might be able to sleep that off. But the wine of the wrath of God is forever. It is eternal. There's no sleeping off the effects of it. What's even more devastating is the reality that as the individual drinks the wrath of God, their eyes are opened to who God is. So as they are in hell, they can cry out, I see, I see. You are who you say you are. I believe now. Save me from this. It's too late. Their cries. Their cries are smothered by the darkness and the smoke that goes up for all of eternity. And this is not a new reality for an individual in hell. Every person residing in hell believes. They all have the same cry. Save me. Save me. We must be devoted to the gospel church. It's not a game. This isn't a gimmick. This isn't a joke. Literally, every single day that we have is the mercy of God for our feet to hit the floor, walk out into the world, and have the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lips. Because we don't know if that individual across from me, the individual that is in that chair or at my dinner table who I, or, or at my office as I'm sitting down crunching numbers to create a budget for them, if we will ever see them again or if they will ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But church, I say you're here now. So when you're there, speak it. Speak it. We must be devoted to the gospel because it gives enduring power. Verse 12 says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. The gospel gives us power to keep going. That's what endurance is. It's being able to, to trek through a circumstance that may not be pleasant, it may be difficult, but it gives you the power to keep moving and not waver. 
the individuals leading house churches and underground churches in Iraq, their response to the Taliban was, we're not going anywhere. We will stay put and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Talk about endurance. Church, we must endure. And John knows this all too well. He knows that there is slander coming. He knows that there is isolation coming. He knows that there is harm coming. And he still says, we must endure because he walked through it all. Our call to endure is not simply because God is going to save the saints, but because he's going to judge the wicked. Because he's going to judge the wicked and the reality of this should allow us to let go of hurt, let go of bitterness that someone has caused you and whatever else might be in your heart. We have to endure past those things, press on through those things to preach the gospel into the darkness. As the clock ticks down, we are in a raging spiritual battle. And the enemy is not going to relent in this season. He's not going to relent. So church, hear me. We can't either. And we, again, know what happens. Our conquering king, we go in his power and his will. We must endure. This passage nails down even more the great contrast between the rest of believers and the endless torment of those who don't follow Jesus. This is why it says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They are blessed as they die under the smile and adoration of God. And he says, come in, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest, my beloved. It's a beautiful picture for the believer. And we want that for all. All because if we aren't aware, the death rate's 100%. Every single person in this room is going to die. We're all going to die. But in our death, there will be two types of people those who are marked by the lamb and those who are marked by the beast, those who follow in the way of Jesus Christ and those who have rejected the way of Jesus Christ. The question is, which are you? Which are you? And I want you to lean over to ask your neighbor, hey, what, what, what mark do you see here? If you have the relationship with your neighbor, you might ask what they might write on your forehead based upon how you live. Based upon how you might live. Church, today is a grace and a mercy of God. He didn't have to give us this day. But we praise him and thank him for it. But I do not want you to leave this place without dealing with God. Because we're not promised tomorrow. Neither is the individual you're thinking of right now that does not know Jesus. So if there's someone here that you know and that you love so dearly, wouldn't you leave this place today and go tell them the good news of Jesus? What are we so afraid of? And hear me. I have the same temptation. 
to be afraid, to be worried, to be rejected. Just because I'm standing here doesn't mean I don't feel the same thing that you feel. The weight of this text has convicted me beyond belief this week. Church, I pray it would do the same for you, whether you're a new believer or an old believer. You've been around here for a little bit following Jesus, whether you have just stepped into the community of God, the kingdom of God. This weight and this reality should challenge us to go. I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, Let sinners be damned. At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Do we live this way? Or do we skip over the reality that those who are not found in Christ will drink the judgment of their own sin? The wrath of God foolproof poured out upon them. Do not waver because hell is real, church. If we believe that heaven is a beautiful place, that it is real, and for those that follow Jesus, we'll spend eternity there. We have to believe that those who do not follow Jesus will spend eternity in a real place called hell. There's no way around the two. So we must go speaking the name of Jesus Christ, him crucified for our sin. The fact that there's nothing that any of us could do to get to heaven. There's no moral standard. There's no good deed. There's no self-righteousness. Pick me up by my bootstraps and keep moving way to get to heaven. It is only by the blood of Christ. It is only by his sacrifice on the cross if we lay ourselves down at his feet, believing he is who he says he is, repenting from our sin. Repentance is a 180 degree turn. I'm walking the other way. And by Jesus' death, his burial, and hear me, his resurrection, he has defeated sin and death by fulfilling the will of God, drinking the cup of wrath of God, foolproof. This is why you see Jesus say, Father, let this cup pass from me. He felt the weight of sin and the wrath. God. But then he says, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. So on the cross, as he is crucified, as he's laying dead in his tomb, he is drinking the wrath of God, foolproof, for those 
that would repent and place their faith in him. And in his resurrection, he has secured in his hands their eternity with him in heaven. More importantly, we are with him. This is the truth we must speak. This is the point that Charles Spurgeon is trying to get across. This is the point that John is trying to get across. This is the point that the Lord is trying to get across. There is no other way. And church, would you devote yourselves to the gospel? Because it gives us the power to endure, the power to stand against the gates of hell and speak his name into the darkness. It has the power to save. Let us pray. King Jesus, you are worthy of it all. You are matchless in grace and majesty in your kingdom. But we also know because of those things, you are matchless in your wrath and the reality that you will judge sin because you are holy. Father, you have made a way. For your creation to be redeemed. And that is not by our own doing, God. That is by your grace and your mercy that you have so lavished upon us that time and time and time again, when we choose Babylon over you, you stand there with open arms and saying, come to me. God, we know based upon this text that the clock is ticking where you will come and judge our sin. Now is the time for repentance. Father, I plead that we as a church would feel this weight and we as a church would carry your name, your life, your grace, and your mercy and speak it to people. You've saved us to send us, God. We've laid our yes on the table. And we want to go to our workplaces, to our families, to our schools. Across the ocean, wherever you would call. Father, may we be a people who pour out your love and your mercy. May we be tools in your hand to advance your kingdom, God. In your precious, sweet, and holy name, we pray these things. Amen.